0: Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Good evening, everybody. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. I'm glad you're here. So we we look through the beatitudes. Can anybody remember what beatitude means from last time? Or you already knew it. Blessed, good. Where does it come from? This is extra credit. If you can remember that, you don't have to know this to get to heaven. But from the Latin Vulgate, beat, which is blessed or bliss. Good. All right. What else? Can you remember what what uh, what does Jesus sitting down signify for us that he 's taking the place of authority like a rabbi right, and so he sits down and of course uh, anybody living in Judea would think that a Galilean rabbi is less than reputable, but uh, Jesus, the Son of God, honors his word. remember in uh, Isaiah it talks about we read this at Christmas time. The lands of Zebulun and Naphtali have have dwelt in darkness, and they'll see a great light. Well, that's the very region of Galilee Jesus is teaching in right now. I think it's awesome. God honored his word, and uh, he sent Jesus to the very place that was the first to go into exile, the first to see themselves conquered by um, the Assyrians, and God sends his grace first to them. I think it's beautiful. All right, we're looking at uh chapter five. We're gonna deal with one verse tonight, and there's three parts of it. And this is this um starts with a strange irony because Jesus here is talking about being blessed. And normally when we think of being blessed, we think of well-being, and and certainly that's true, but a lot of times we think in terms of like uh maybe a physical well-being or uh everything going well. And as you read through this list, uh there are things that are are not uh, easy to go through. There are things that are not preferred to be going through. And yet Jesus says, when you live in the kingdom, you may have to go through these things, but consider yourself blessed regardless. And so this uh, starts with a strange irony. Uh, what, is, what is irony? Because that, that's important when we look at Scripture. There are a lot of places where there's there's irony in the Bible. What is What is irony? Anybody know? It's when you, when you expect one thing and you get another. Okay? You expect one thing and you get something else. And in this case, you would expect for him to say certain things about the blessed. You're, you'd expect the kingdom to be made up of spiritual powerhouses and those who could claim good things for themselves, that they were good people and righteous. Instead, the kingdom of God is made up of the poor in spirit, and that's a a strange phrase since there are great spiritual riches to be had through the spirit of God. So I want you to know that when we enter, I often think, I don't know why this is the case, I don't remember watching this or reading this a lot when I was a kid, but you remember Alice in Wonderland, before she goes into Wonderland, uh, does she eat something or drink something on the table and she shrinks down, okay, and goes through the door. Okay, and then she finds a whole new world in there, and I think this is uh, in some ways the way the kingdom of God is is that and, and I don't know if you knew this, but um, they say Lewis Carroll was a Christian, so maybe he had some kind of perspective on this from from that. I can't say for sure, but I do know that for us to get into the riches of the kingdom, there's a f- there first is the uh, spiritual poverty that we have to deal with. We have spiritual poverty, and and I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but uh, there are great riches that we have through the Spirit of God. He's blessed us, Paul says in Ephesians, with every uh, spiritual blessing in Christ. And uh, as we look at the Beatitudes, I want to remind you that these are not laws. These are not Jesus saying, I command you to be this way and I command you to be that way. He's describing what the kingdom of God is like, what those who live within the kingdom are like. So these are descriptions or characteristics of people who live in the kingdom. It's uh, a subtle invitation to come on Jesus' terms. And of course he's already speaking to right now he's speaking to who? Who are the who's the primary hearers of the Beatitudes? The disciples. I mean, I often think of, you know, all the crowds gathered around. Maybe there are crowds that are horning in. I always think there's a few more people than the scripture mentions that are gathered there, uh, except in some cases where you know it's just him and his disciples. But it says his disciples came to him and then he he taught them. And so, he's telling them what the kingdom is like, and, and these, uh, disciples, most of them, are going to be future apostles. They're going to go and to preach the kingdom to the rest of the world, and they're gonna describe these characteristics, and they're gonna lay out what this looks like in their letters. And they're gonna show the world what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so we're getting a sampling here as Jesus, we're listening in as Jesus is teaching his first disciples, our apostles, and I think to understand this verse, we need to understand four parts. Um, we need to understand these words and how they connect uh, within this uh, this little phrase here. Notice it says in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so here's the four parts. There's poor in spirit, which we'll I think we'll deal with first here. Then there's kingdom of heaven. And then we'll deal with theirs is... What does that mean? And then blessed, which if you were here last week, you already have a sampling of that. So um, misunderstanding on these different parts has led to, uh, well, it's led to misunderstanding. Misunderstanding these parts has led to the misunderstanding of the whole of what Jesus is saying. Um, Some people have thought because of this verse that to be poor equals spiritual. That's not what this verse is saying. Okay. Or that Jesus is talking about uh, about how to go to heaven. Or even worse, that by being poor, that they're earning heaven. That if you can take a vow of poverty and get rid of all your stuff, then you'll go to heaven. And that's a misunderstanding, too, of the rich young ruler. Do you know the story of the rich young ruler? I was thinking about this Sunday morning when Kiki was preaching about uh, finances. The rich young ruler, you know what his problem was? His problem was that he was blind to his own idolatry. Jesus said, uh, he said, what must I do to enter the kingdom? And Jesus said, keep the commands, which was bait. Do you know that? It was bait. Because the guy said, I have kept all the commands since I was young. Okay, and then he said, well, go sell all you have and give to the poor and come follow me. And the man didn't do it. He went away sad. Why? Because he had an idol. What's the idol? What's his idol? His money. What's the first command? You shall have no other gods before me. What Jesus did is with wisdom exposed that he was not a lawkeeper, and he was badly in need of a savior. He needed grace. Even if he did sell all he had and give, he wasn't earning heaven by doing that. What he was doing is abandoning his idols and putting his trust completely in Christ. But he wouldn't do it. So you see, when we talk about being poor in spirit, we're not asking ourselves to abandon in some sense our earthly riches. Well, we are in one sense. The re- reality of it is, is that God demands all of us. Okay, uh, Chuck Swindoll said in one of his books, I can't remember which one, but he's talked about how he demands it all, but then he often gives back the thing he demands for stewardship. You know what I mean by that? Like He doesn't say, well, now that you've given it all, you got to go away and have nothing. No, he says, now that it's mine... Let let me let you use this for my purposes, okay? So, there's resources for that. So, it's a misunderstanding to think that what God is asking for in, in this, what Jesus is requiring of his disciples, or anybody who would be a kingdom subject, that they would be poor in every uh, natural sense. That's not the point here. And so, it might sound surprising, so we're going to talk about, here's the first part here, uh, poor... In spirit. Okay, poor in spirit. So it might sound surprising to hear Jesus say that um, anyone in his kingdom uh, must be poor. But do you know that poor can mean a couple things? One, it can mean socioeconomically poor. And what is that? What is that? Socioeconomically poor. To have no money, to have no status to be outcasts, to be down-and-outers, that's one particular kind of poverty. But that's not really the focus here because a person may be uh, poor or rich and stand in God's favor or his displeasure. The other meaning of poor, though, is uh, referring to dependence upon another person. <laughs> I heard, uh, I, heard uh, I think it was Jerry Seinfeld, his kids asked him one time, Dad, are we rich? And he said, you're not rich. I'm rich. And uh, there's a sense in which that's true, in which we're poor in that way. That we're poor, we don't have anything. Remember, uh, A.W. Tozer said in his book, The Pursuit of God, Abraham was one who possessed many things but owned nothing. Nothing was his. It was all stewardship. Everything belonged to God. Even if you require my son, I'll go sacrifice him on a mountain that's a that's what it means to have if you want to say it this way to have God as your father is that we are dependent upon someone else for our riches, and so a person may be poor or rich and stand in God's pleasure or displeasure, but this meaning is to refer it's referring to dependence upon someone else the The idea here is is uh to not have our own but to know someone who does. Have what we need, and when it comes to our spiritual um, equity, our spiritual bank account, we're bankrupt, and we need somebody who has all the spiritual resource we need. And so we come to we come to Christ. So He's less concerned here about about poor. Most people in Galilee in those days would be poor by our standards. And some would have been poor by their own standards. The the virtue Jesus is lifting up is not concerned with money. It's concerned with spiritual poverty. And so notice that the statement here is poor in spirit. That helps us to know what he's talking about in particular. It's poor in spirit. This is pertaining to one who is humble with regard to his own capacities. It's, it's in the realm of the spirit. And this figure of speech means to be humble about our capacity to relate to God, and to recognize our need for God, okay? There's a lot of people around us, and maybe sometimes we get like this, that think that they deserve to be heard by God because they're pretty good people. And you know what the standard is? We, we look around and we compare and we see people who are uh, lawbreakers, who hurt children. We see people who do drugs or people who are... Uh, selfish in some kind of way more than us and we go well pretty good we're pretty good compared to that what's the bible standard of goodness yep Jesus the glory of God his goodness his holiness who gets to measure up there Jesus is the only one Paul was pretty good but he wasn't there So um, this came to me one time in college. If you compare yourself to other people, you always feel pride that you shouldn't have or you feel shame that you shouldn't have. The only person we should compare ourselves with in terms of our holiness is with God himself. And what that leaves us doing is feeling that we're with everybody else in the same boat, striving to be more like him. And so we're not, and, and God is not condemning. When we understand that, this is not a thing where we have to, to feel absolute shame because he comes and he takes our He takes our sin and guilt away. He covers our shame, and he calls us to the table to be one with him. It's like in the Old Testament when David finds Mephibosheth, and he says, come and sit at the table like one of my sons, Mephibosheth. What he expected from David was to, to get killed because that's what kings did from their of their predecessors. They kill all the descendants off, so there's no other claim to the throne. Instead, David decides he's going to show kindness, and he brings Mephibosheth to the table and treats him like his own son. That's what God's done for us in our poverty. Mephibosheth, the king's son, was living like a pauper, wasn't he? He didn't know the goodness of sitting at the king's table, or he hadn't in a long time. So we have have no personal capacity to relate to God in our own goodness. Uh, As Jeremiah said, none are righteous, no, not one. And then Paul echoes that in the book of Romans. And we hear uh, also from Paul that our righteousness is as filthy rags. That means our best offering of goodness is like throwaways. Okay. Filthy rags. I'm just going to leave that there. So the emphasis here is dependence upon God for all things. In Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2, this is, uh, I think, the echo that Jesus uh, brings, is bringing up when he's referring to the poor in spirit. In Isaiah 66, 2, uh, of course, people were proud, but, but God says to them, has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. These are the ones I look on with favor. These are the ones who are blessed, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. This is who God is looking for and who can stand in his favor, not those who are proud in themselves. Uh, What does the Bible say in James about the proud? He resists the proud, but then he does something else to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. Resists is going actively to war, or at least contrary in purpose to those who are proud. He fights against them. Resists is active fighting against the proud. Think of that. Uh, I mean, I don't like having enemies, but one enemy I definitely don't want to have is God fighting against me. That's what that's talking about. Resisting, he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble But sometimes we have these other areas of self-reliance. What are some areas that you think of when it comes to self-reliance? And if we're honest about it, as Americans, we do this really well. I mean, the prayer that's prayed by Archie Bunker or by um, Homer Simpson is something like, you know, thanks for all of this, even though we worked for it. So what what are some of the things that uh, show that we uh, have self-reliance? A hard worker, okay. Self-reliance. Self-reliance, good or bad? Well, I think maybe we ought to clarify. In some ways, it's good to be capable, but there's an attitude of self-reliance that says, I don't need anyone else. Is that good or bad? It's not good. It's not good. We need the Lord, so we can we can rely upon power and wealth and reputation, talent, intelligence, heritage, goodness. Like some people think, well, I'm going to heaven. My parents took me to church. <laughs> well, that doesn't do it. We're we're really really good compared to everybody else. Jesus said with tongue in cheek, uh, "It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick." What was the? Con, what was the context of that? Do you remember? Uh, not all the details, but why did he? Why did he say that? Do you remember? What's that? Right. Yeah, and wasn't he at some kind of a gathering where there were sinful people around him? And yeah, people were were getting on to him for hanging out with the sinful people. And so he comes back with this: that why aren't, you know, if you're so righteous, why aren't you hanging out with all the doctors of religion and the the people who are at the, the like in the priesthood and at the temple? And why are you hanging out with these outcasts? And Jesus said, "I I came for uh, the righteous and not, or the unrighteous and not the righteous. It's not the healthy who need a physician, but the sick." Right, and here it was tongue in cheek because you realize this is Mark chapter two verse seventeen. You realize that those who thought of themselves as righteous, they needed a savior every bit as much as the others did. In fact, in fact, um, sometimes it's harder to win somebody who is self righteous than it is to win somebody who already knows they're in trouble spiritually. Like some people, they know they need God. Some people who should know that they need God don't know that they need God. and They feel pretty secure in themselves. Dallas Willard said in uh, his book, The Divine Conspiracy, Jesus did not say blessed are the poor in spirit because they're poor in spirit. He didn't think what a fine thing it is to be destitute in every spiritual attainment of quality or that it makes people worthy of the kingdom. Poor in spirit, uh, those who are poor in spirit were called blessed by Jesus, not because of it being a meritorious condition, but because of Him. In spite of and in the midst of their ever so deplorable conditions, the rule of heaven has moved redemptive, uh, redemptively upon those who stand in need of God's grace. Why is it that we we need to be poor in spirit? Why, why do Christians need to be poor in spirit? This is uh, Thomas Watson. He wrote a book. I think he's probably a Puritan back in the, um, probably the 1700s, 1600s, 1700s, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe it was later. But he wrote this. The more, more important thing is what he said here. He says, until we are poor in spirit, we are not capable of receiving grace. We are already full. We're already good enough. He said, until we're poor in spirit, we will never abandon our poverty. Because we don't see it. Think of it. I mean, we need Jesus. We need salvation. We need life. We need something more than what we can bring to the table. It's interesting, the word for life that's used in the Bible. When we have, we have life of, of this particular kind, there's bios. We have biological function. And there's a lot of people walking around functioning biologically, but they don't have real life. Are you with me? Like, they're going through their day, they're eating, they're taking care of their body, they might be exercising, they might be getting the right amount of sleep, and what they're doing is they're feeding their body to live one more day so they can sleep one more day and eat one more day and live one more day and do one more thing until finally the end. That's dreary. But on the other side of, of that is the life, the Zoe, the spiritual life that Christ gives us in which... Life is not just about biological function, okay? That's what evolution would have us believe. When there's some kind of uh, mechanical, atheistic evolution in which we just are here, then the only function of life is just to try to perpetuate itself and survive. But not, Chris, not Christian life. We're living with purpose. We're living for God. We, we're living for eternity. We're living in relationship, and life has real meaning, But sometimes we don't see it because maybe we're too full up on ourselves. The Laodiceans, you remember the rebuke that Jesus gave them in the book of Revelation? I don't know if you realize this, but the red letters aren't just in the Gospels. The red letters are also in the book of Revelation. And Jesus rebuked the Laodiceans. He said, you think that you're rich, but you're not. You're naked and poor and wretched and blind. Come and buy from me gold refined by the fire. He's telling them, you need, even though you think you don't. Jenny and I have been to Laodicea, and I'm telling you, still to this day, you can tell that it was a rich city. They had not one theater; they had two theaters. They said over a hundred thousand people, maybe two hundred thousand people, lived there. You can see they had ruts on their roads, just like we have ruts on our roads, probably from chariots, not cars. Ford, I don't think was was there, um, but you could tell there was opulence. I mean, they brought water in from distances so that they could drink and be nourished because the local water wasn't very good. Had all of that, and Jesus says to them that they would be comparable to modern-day affluent Americans. You think that because you have all this wealth, you have all you need, but you don't. You have spiritual poverty. This is what is being driven out here. We will never... Abandon our poverty spiritually until we understand that we're poor in spirit. Until we understand we're poor in spirit, we'll never see Christ as precious. Some people don't see the beauty of Christ because they don't know their need for him. They don't think of their need for him. He's superfluous to their life. He's a bonus, an extra add-on, something you add on to your weekends because you're bored. Well, (laughs) you want to get really bored, (laughs) come to church not believing in Jesus. That's boring. When you believe in Jesus, it has meaning. It's still sometimes boring. But the point that I'm trying to make here is that we don't see the beauty and, and worth of Christ until we understand our poverty. We're blinded by our pride and we think that we're we're really wealthy and uppity and then uh, something comes along like the saying of Jesus here. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul, who I think he gets this. He, I, I know he gets this, but oftentimes maybe we don't relate these two passages of being poor in spirit with what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians three. Um the, the context of this is that there are a group of Judaizers that are going, they're, it seems that they're tracking Paul and they're going behind him and trying to undo everything he does. Whenever he preaches grace, they want to add law to it. They want to try to teach that, okay, but you still have to be circumcised, you still have to fulfill all these requirements of the law. And so Paul comes back in his letter in Philippians 3, Verse 4 says, though I myself have such confidence, have reasons for such confidence, spiritual riches, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now, this is, this is like what he would call in Second Corinthians his foolish boast, okay? He's not trying to be arrogant. What he's trying to do is trying to bring everybody down to the same level. He's trying to knock the, the boast out from under his opponents because he really doesn't buy into this boast, but he's making it to make a point. That makes sense? Okay, so he says, if somebody else has this reason to put confidence in his flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day. Why is that important? It, It obeys the law, right? Okay. Of the people of Israel, so I'm an Israelite, of the tribe of Benjamin, I can trace my heritage. Okay. Hebrew of Hebrews. In regards to the law, a Pharisee, okay, not one of those um, sometimes law-keeping Sadducees or those that have kind of sold out to the the Roman Empire. Now I'm a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church, I want to shut down everything. He wanted to at one time shut down everything he saw as a divergent doctrine, and so he went after Christianity, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. What are the all things he's talking about? I mean, we can know he's given up his life, but in this context, what are the all things? His pedigree, his Righteousness, his boasts, his laurels, his accolades, his trophies, anything that would be a trophy of righteousness that somebody would sit on the shelf and say, this is why God loves me. He pushes it off and says, I consider them loss for the sake of knowing Christ. I consider them garbage, rubbish. King James has, <laughs> I can't butt dung, right? You get the picture, something to be thrown out. That I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. What is He saying here? He's saying here that He is, He wants to be poor and He's recognizing His spiritual poverty. He's poor in spirit. That He comes to the table just like all of us. He doesn't get, He doesn't get a head start because He knows All the things if you sat at the feet of Gamaliel, that's like the harvard of the day. He sat there at the feet of Gamaliel. He's got this spiritual pedigree. He says, No, I'm poor in spirit. I need I need God's riches. Watson says in his book on the Beatitudes, this poverty is your riches and nobility. All right. So what are we talking about when we say poor in spirit? Spiritual poverty. The kingdom of the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who come and recognize their spiritual poverty. Not taking up poverty, not taking a vow of poverty, not living without because you think somehow you're gaining heavenly reward by doing it. None of that. We come through poverty, it's the broken and contrite heart that he will not despise, right? All right, let's look at this next one because we want to get past that misunderstanding. This one is kingdom of heaven. Okay, kingdom of heaven. It says in the New English translation, the present tense belongs here. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Let's look at our scripture again. It says here that blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What's the verb that describes possession here? Theirs is, right? Not will be, not was, is. Present tense verb. Isn't it interesting that that's used here? So. That, I think, m- makes an important point, which we'll come to. But Jesus here makes the kingdom and its blessings currently available. This, uh, this phrase is unlike the others in the list with the possessive pronoun being emphasized. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And there are other, um, there are other places within the Beatitudes where it talks about some future reality. But here, uh, like, they shall see God. That's future, right? They shall see God. Pure in heart, we'll see God. But here it's talking about something that is present. So uh, I want to encourage us as we look at this, we're going to take a little time to look at this, not to get hung up on the word kingdom by misunderstanding it. I, I saw this in a few places as I was studying this that the English word kingdom may suggest some things which could detour us and take us off track. Okay, and tell you what the Greek word is, but. Uh, that's less relevant to us than the fact that this word kingdom doesn't exactly match that word. Okay, the reason why kingdom might take us off uh, off track a little bit is because kingdom suggests to us a place, okay, like um, Camelot, <laughs> right? Some kind of place. The kingdom of I don't know Narnia. What's what's another kingdom that we could think of? The United Kingdom. That's the, the British Isles, right? That's a place. Okay? So you can think of of that, the kingdom as a place. And and if we think of the kingdom as a place, when we talk about this kingdom that Jesus is mentioning that the poor in spirit uh, will somehow possess or be a part of, uh, it would mislead us to think that he's suggesting a place. Okay? Because that's not really what this is about. The other thing is that it suggests a people. And... And while that may be true in one sense, it's not true in another, okay? Because what the Israelites might have come to understand, or the the Jewish people that are listening to Jesus here, the disciples may have even kind of got this out of this because of their question at the very end, when Jesus is getting ready to ascend, they ask a question. What's the question? Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Okay, they want to know. Like, they don't understand exactly what he's doing. He says, look, you wait at Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. Then the mission will become more clear. You're going to get it. You'll be my witnesses. And the kingdom is not going to be bound up in borders, and it's not going to be bound up in a nationality or some kind of physical genealogy. It's much bigger than that. And so if we're thinking of it as the Jewish people, as the kingdom of God, we're going to get the wrong idea. Okay? And then the third thing is that it hints at a political realm. And what you'll see of Jesus is that he doesn't fit in any political category of his day. And I would suggest to you he doesn't fit in any particular category of our day. Okay, Jesus would have things to say to both sides of the aisle and to challenge. And uh, I'm not trying to get political or in any way uh, divisive here. I'm just saying that we can't somehow co-opt Jesus into our politics as if our politics came first and Jesus came later and he naturally fit there Okay, right Ooh. Well, well we'll let that ride All right, but this is not a political realm in one sense he's not trying to establish an earthly kingdom Pilate asks him are you a king and he's like well yes but I'm not trying to do the kind of thing my kingdom is not of this world if it were, then I would have, I would have built an army. Doesn't that make sense? I don't have an army. Uh, if I do have an army, it's not the kind of army that you're thinking of. It's a different kind of movement, but it's not a political realm in the sense of, like in the Middle Ages, uh, there is something that happened called Christendom, where people brought uh, the Roman Empire together with Christianity and created this political system that many times became abusive and actually worked against the purposes of Christ, sadly. And so that's not what this is about. The kingdom, as it's used in the New Testament, refers not to a place but a state of affairs, the situation in which God is king. Kingdom is is best thought of, I think, as the reign of God. Maybe a better way to say this is when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about the reign of God. He rules and he reigns in a particular way, okay? And as we come into the kingdom, it's us entering under that authority and that leadership and coming into obedience with him. The kingdom of God is as expansive as every obedient heart. Tonight, the kingdom may, the line of the kingdom may run right through this group. There may be some you're living in obedience to God and maybe some who aren't. The kingdom of God are those who are living with God as their King. That doesn't suggest that you've had perfect obedience. It means that in our the tenor of our life that we are we are striving to live a life of obedience to Him. That we're submitted to Him. That we're surrendered to Him. That we're obeying Him as a habit. Okay, and that we're progressing. In our holiness, I think that that's important that we understand. I, I believe this. I know some have a different opinion on this, but but I believe uh, holiness is progressive, That that the seed of God comes to dwell within us, and he starts to undo the sinful habits of our life, and we live in greater obedience every day as we walk with him. That's how it should be. So the kingdom is a state in which we obey God. The kingdom does not refer here... To heaven, I want you to try to follow this because um, this might be a little complicated. I don't, I don't think it so much is, but it could be because if we typically, our mind automatically goes to the fact that he's promising heaven here. He is giving heaven to those who are in the kingdom, but that's not what's meant by kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven here. Okay? So try to follow me, and if you're mad already, just uh, stick with me to the end, and we'll we'll talk about it. The kingdom doesn't refer to heaven. The aspects of the kingdom, which are are here, are already but not yet. Okay? Are already but not yet. The verb is present tense. As we mentioned, theirs is the kingdom. And here's the point that I want to try to make in this. I'm going to just use these words or these letters here. K-O-H. And what is that? Kingdom of heaven. Good. Equals. K O G. What's that? Kingdom of God. Good. I think you guys might already agree with me. We might be wasting time here. But uh, Kingdom of Heaven and Kingdom of God are the same thing. Kingdom of Heaven is used 54 times in Matthew, and four times Matthew uses the Kingdom of God. 32 times he uses the Kingdom of Heaven. So, um, sorry, Kingdom is used 54 times. Only four of those are kingdom of God. 32 are kingdom of heaven. 18 is just kingdom mentioned without any designation of what kind. And so what we find is that Matthew uses the same phrases that Mark and Luke use when they say kingdom of God. Are you following what I mean? Is that in the same verses, you can tell their parallels. Matthew will say kingdom of heaven. Mark and Luke will say kingdom of God. What's the significance of that? Well, here's the thought, and there's some people that believe that Matthew may have been originally written in Aramaic or Hebrew, but we don't have any proof of that. It's just a thought. We don't have any proof of that. But that Matthew's overall gospel tends to be very Jewish in its thinking. Why would that be important? Well, if you're Jewish and you're speaking to a Jewish audience, you use phrases that try to take you far away from taking the Lord's name in vain. You don't want to say God. You don't want to say Lord. You don't want to say Yahweh. If you can help it, you try to use what's called circumlocutions, which is a roundabout way of saying that, or paraphrases. It's the same way, same thing. You're you're beating around the bush a little bit. You're saying something in a roundabout way. And so one of the things that they would do in order to avoid saying God is use substitute for that, heaven. Okay, that might be enough. We do the same thing. Um, For most of us, if we said, for God's sake, that would be offensive. Okay, now you know I'm saying it with the reverential thoughts of God right now. But if we were just saying that in a casual way, probably wouldn't like that. That doesn't sound very reverent, does it? Okay, but you hear people all the time saying, for heaven's sake. And you think nothing of it. Why? Because they've used this exact same Roundabout way of speaking, heaven's sake, actually means for the sake of God, but there's distance that's created by a degree of separation. And I think that's what Matthew is trying to do here. He's using uh, what's called uh, metanomy, okay, which is where you replace one, one thing with some characteristic that's related to it. And so he uses that. And the Bible is full of these. And if you don't if you don't spot them, and you take them literally, then the the meaning is missed. There are hundreds of these in the Bible. Sometimes soul, in Hebrew, is nefesh. If it's used, it it refers to the whole person. And sometimes we say that, like if a plane crashes, you say you know forty five souls perished. Do we mean just their souls or the whole person? Okay. Do you see what I'm saying? That we've used a substitute to communicate. There's other places like this in the Bible. The the heart uh, may refer to the whole person. Uh, You may uh, use the hand to describe what one does. Whatever one does with the hand. Well, they're talking about all of our actions. And so there are places in Scripture where you can't take it exactly literally or we miss the figure of speech. So this is one of those, kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God. And we have some examples of this in Luke chapter 20, verse 4, uh, Jesus asks the question, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of man? What's he saying? Is this of God or is this of man? So he uses a similar kind of thing. Luke chapter 15, verse 18, the prodigal says, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Right? Who Did he sin against heaven or did he sin against God? It's, again, it's this circumlocution. Um, John chapter 3, verse 27. A man can receive nothing except it be given to him from heaven. Okay, another example of that. Sometimes heaven means heaven in the Bible, and I'm not trying to take those away. Sometimes heaven is a roundabout way of referring to God, which um, came from the habit of avoiding saying his name. So when we talk about kingdom of heaven here, Jesus is talking about, The kingdom of God. Well, um, this is Matthew's preferred way of speaking. Uh, This is the way referring to the kingdom uh, was used by Jewish reticence towards talking about God and this way of describing the kingdom is paralleled in the other gospels with kingdom of God. And so the conclusion is kingdom of heaven is kingdom of God. And furthermore, it's not talking about those who are poor in spirit will receive heaven. That's true. Now, I don't want you to mishear me because I think what you might have heard is that I'm saying that Jesus is, has never said that those who are poor in spirit will receive heaven. No, he has. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying here is this is about entering into the kingdom of God. These are the characteristics of those who are in God's kingdom, who are living under his reign. So the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of God. It's talking here about the extent to which God reigns on the earth. It's not geographical, it's personal. Eugene Nida in his um, book says, this is from Message and Mission, Kingdom of God and Kingdom of Heaven, as far as the early church was concerned, these phrases appear to have the same, uh, have have been uh, almost entirely interchangeable depending on the participants in the communication. And if you want more resources on this, uh, Bivin and Blizzard, Understanding the Difficult Words of Jesus, page 19, Lad, Jesus in the Kingdom, France, I came to set fire on earth, Jeremias, New Testament Theology, Anaida, Message and Mission. Alright, so, Kingdom. Let's talk about the next part here. Theirs is. Okay, theirs. Theirs is. Uh, it could mean the kingdom of God belongs to the poor in spirit or consists of such people. However, it doesn't mean that they own it. Okay, If you're poor in spirit, you don't own the kingdom of God. Okay, So when we say theirs is, it's not possessive in the sense of, yes, the kingdom is mine. I can do whatever I want with it. I can display whatever power I want to in it. I can live however I want to. No. And the other thing is, it doesn't mean that if you are poor in spirit and you've entered the kingdom that you rule, since only God rules. God is the one who's in charge. And it doesn't mean that it's made by being poor in spirit. Since the outcome of the last judgment, uh, it says that the kingdom will be finally fully given to them. You realize that when it comes to the kingdom, there's an already aspect that's right now, yours, and there's a not yet that will fully be completed in the future. Okay? We we haven't fully seen the fullness of God's reign. It's there in principle, but one day every knee will bow whether gladly or reluctantly, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Okay? Then we're going to see what the kingdom of God is fully like when it's fully lived out in the moment we can experience it for ourselves but the fullness of it in everyone's experience awaits a future time so the emphasis here is on the fact that they are already we are already citizens who enjoy the benefits of being ruled by God and we're counted as God's subjects if you're a Christian you're a subject of God it's given to us. We belong to the kingdom of God. Whenever God is in control, his sovereignty uh, accepted and his will obeyed, that's where the kingdom of God is. And ideally, the kingdom of God means that all men everywhere will acknowledge God. I mean, that's what we want. That's what we're, we're hoping for. That's what we're preaching for. You know, uh, the Bible says, Go into all the world and make disciples of every nation, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Do you realize sometimes we get hung up on this idea of how can we go and tell somebody else how they ought to live? Okay? As if you know because you have all the right answers and you're in the right and we're in the wrong. You, know, you understand the trouble that we have in this postmodern world? That nobody can really tell anybody else their way of living is wrong and that the person who's telling them that That person's way is right. How can you do that? Well, we're under divine mandate not to take our own kingdom, and we must be very careful, I think, in mixing culture with that. It's been a real tragedy that sometimes the church has insisted that people abandon culture where cultural things were neutral. That's sad. But I will tell you that there is a culture of Christ that must be proclaimed, and every person under God's heaven... Has to submit to that. You know what I mean? Has to doesn't mean they will. Should. That the kingdom, the culture of the kingdom of God, everybody must come into obedience to Christ. Well, that will change our culture and our religion. If it changes your religion, it changes it for the better. Because we're following Christ. There are some things in every culture, just like I was talking about politics earlier, there's some things in every culture which which the message of christ must condemn in every culture and so we can't st- step back and say well that's just <laughs> for example that that's just white culture the gospel isn't white culture it came from a jewish itinerant preacher okay understand that it's not about any race it's about coming into God's kingdom and under his rule and reign. It says theirs is. Whenever God's in control, there the kingdom of God is. Jesus announced the coming of the kingdom declaring that it was his mission to restore relationship between God and men. As one after another accepted his teaching and submitted to him as Lord, so the kingdom began to become a reality. And so we're today. If you're a um, follower of Christ, if you're trusting in Him, if you're submitted to Him, your yours is the kingdom. Right now, yours is the kingdom. Right now, you're in the kingdom. Right now, you sit under the King, the King who will one day emerge and become visible for us. You know that sounds almost mystical, doesn't it? I don't mean it like that. He'll return. That's the more important part. He will return. And then he will be visible, every eye will see him. Remember how it says in the book of Revelation that they will look upon him whom they've pierced, the rebellious will, and they'll mourn. Quoting Zechariah twelve ten. Mourn as for an only son. So today you're you're in the kingdom of your trust in Christ, and all that remains is for that kingdom to become more fully realized, and it will. And that leads us to this last part. Theirs is. It's now, and it awaits a a future, greater fulfillment. And then there's the blessed. Okay, this is, we talked about this last week, so we won't spend much time on this, plus we don't have a lot of time. The blessed. Who's the blessed? Well, that ought to be you and me. The term blessed here introduces the first of Several beatitudes promising blessing to those whom God cares for, and in one sense, to be blessed means to stand under His favor. Okay, you can't be blessed and be be without the favor of God. But if you're under God's favor, you're blessed. Okay, and that, that's the the meaning of the Hebrew word is to to look upon us with favor to 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 stand within His favor. Okay, so this introduces the, those beatitudes and. Who are the blessed? Those who recognize their spiritual poverty and come to him on the basis of expectation and need, recognizing he's the sole supplier of every spiritual need we have. Not only every spiritual need, but we look to him for everything else, too. Uh, When we go to work, um, we don't look to our employer as our provider, if you're a Christian. So thankful they write the check, but it's God who's the provider. Because I guarantee you, if God shuts off the faucet to your employer, the faucet's going to get shut off to you. <laughs> so he is the supplier. If we go into some kind of huge economic downturn, doesn't matter who your employer is. You're going to be hurting just like everybody else unless God supplies our need, which he does. So these uh, these callings, this blessing that's invoked here, It serves as an invitation to come into the the grace God offers. And Jesus is speaking this to his disciples. So first, Jesus describes the character of those who are blessed. And then the last of the Beatitudes kind of shifts from third person plural to second uh, person plural. From they to you guys. This is the normal pattern. Uh, Status. What's the status? Look right up here on the screen. What's our spiritual status? Blessed. Okay, And then um, the second thing that these Beatitudes mention, we'll see this pattern come again and again, is the, the character or condition. So uh, if we think about character condition, what's this character or condition of the person who's in the kingdom? Poor in spirit. That's a character condition. And then the third is an explanation of why we're blessed okay what's the what's the explanation of our blessing in this one ours is the kingdom of heaven you're blessed you're in the kingdom you're under god's rule god is a, a beneficent dictator he's not a tyrant but when we say dictator we mean that he's the, the buck stops there he has absolute rule but he's benevolent he's good towards us and in fact he even allows us freedom if you wanted to he won't force you to do the good but he invites you to and one day we will answer to him one day he's given us a measure of freedom one day we'll stand before him with the consequences of our lives how we've responded to him whether we've responded to his grace or not what we've done, with what we've been given. And the Bible seems to suggest, even under the call of grace, that we will answer for our actions. Do you understand that? And so we have to respond to him as as king. But we are a part of the kingdom. I'd like to just take a look at this. I kind of paraphrase these. And I hope you'll allow me a little bit of freedom to do that. We've got the scriptures before us. If you need to read it right after to cleanse your your mind of my paraphrase, then do that. But I wanted to state these in a kind of an opposite order, just so we can see it a little bit, take a fresh perspective on this. Um, You know, if, if I need justification for that, you know, the Greek word order doesn't exactly follow the English because it can't. Okay. Um, English says things a certain way. Greek says things a different way, but uh, I'm going to say it this way. Verse three, the kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit. They are blessed. There will be comfort for those who mourn. They are blessed. The earth will be inherited by the gentle. They are blessed. They will have their fill, those who desire righteousness like food and drink. They are blessed. Those who receive mercy will be the merciful. They are blessed. The ones who will see God are the pure in heart. They are blessed. Those who will be called children of God are the peacemakers. They are blessed. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those who, uh, those persecuted for the sake of righteousness. They are blessed. The reward in heaven is great for those who are reviled and persecuted and ill spoken of falsely because of me. How like the prophets before you to be treated that way. You are blessed. And I wanted to suggest to you today that that's us. We're the blessed. Blessed doesn't always have all of the implications that we think of. It means that we're whole, we're under God's care. And at the end of the day, no matter whether it's been a good day or a bad day, we have as a resource God's favor. It doesn't matter if people have been for us or against us. You're standing in God's favor. Thank God for that. You understand what this is getting at? Jesus is telling his disciples, regardless of external circumstance, if you're standing in God's favor, that's a good thing. And it doesn't matter how bad it gets otherwise. It's still, it's a good thing. Thank the Lord. Amen. Well, we're out of time. Thanks for your attention tonight. That's great. That's a great uh, conflation of everything that I was trying to say. It says it really well. I appreciate that. That the, the Lord being in us, and that's the blessing. And at the end of the day, our reward is not streets of gold. It's getting to be with him. It's having relationship with him in the everyday. And that's an important point we want to make sure we hang on to. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Ask your blessing on it. We pray that you'd help us to internalize. Everything that's here, Lord, everything that's been true, that's been spoken of tonight, would you cause it to become part of our spiritual makeup so that, Lord, we can respond to you and live for you out of the, out of the heart, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.